The Reconstructionist Radio Podcast Network brings to you a complete lineup of podcasts where you will hear practical and tactical theology. Our desire is not simply that you consume our shows, but that you also live out your faith in every area of life. We can talk all day long about these things, but if we fail to put them into practice, then we fail as ambassadors of Jesus Christ, our King. Subscribe now to your favorite Reconstructionist Radio Podcast Network shows, or you can subscribe to the Reconstructionist Radio Master Feed, where all of the content we produce, including the audiobooks and audio articles, will pop up as soon as they are available. And don't forget to visit ReconstructionistRadio.com to volunteer as a narrator or to partner with this ministry financially. May the Holy Spirit stir you into action for Christ and His Kingdom. The Reconstructionist Radio Podcast Network presents The Roots of Reconstruction by Rusas John Rushduni Narrated by Shelby Luke This is a Reconstructionist Radio Podcast Please visit calcedon.edu to download this book and many others. Greetings in the name of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. My name is Shelby Luke and I will be reading from Roots of Reconstruction by Russus John Rushduni. Introduction The essays in this volume include all my Calcedon Report articles except for book reviews from the first issue in 1965 until almost middle 1989. In the early years, I was the only writer except for two or three numbers written by someone else at my invitation. Missing numbers in the early reports mean that I contributed nothing. All these articles are exactly as originally written, except that in three different articles, a single word was added in each to clarify a point, and one brief sentence was added in a fourth report where the meaning was unclear. None of this altered the contents. The first report in 1965 announced my concern the need for Christian reconstruction, and the term was there first used. It was much criticized at the time, and by some still is. The term, however, sets forth the purpose of Chalcedon, to apply God's word to every area of life and thought, and to summon the redeemed to God to their responsibilities in Christ our King. The irrelevance of too many churchmen to the dominion mandate has made the church irrelevant to our time. A great change is now underway. In 1961, in one of my earliest books, Intellectual Schizophrenia, I concluded the last chapter on, quote, the end of an age, unquote, with this paragraph. The end of an age is always a time of turmoil, war, economic catastrophe, cynicism, lawlessness, and distress. But it is also an era of heightened challenge and creativity, of issues and their worldwide scope. Never has an era faced a more demanding and exciting crisis. This, then, above all else, is the great and glorious era to live in, a time of opportunity, one requiring fresh and vigorous thinking, indeed a glorious time to be alive. Page 113F 
It was not an easy time for me then when I wrote those words, nor is it now, 29 years later. But I feel even more strongly that it is a privilege to live in a time when serving the Lord can be so telling and important. I love my calling to serve the triune God in any capacity is a joy and a blessing, whatever the problems, hostilities, and malice one encounters. I am not saying that I enjoy my troubles. Far from it. I am as prone to complaining to God as anyone, but I try also to be faithful in expressing my gratitude for the redemption and the calling which he has given me. Russus John Rushdoony, June 14, 1989 Conflict with the State A Chalcedon Position Paper In recent years, under the influences of humanism on the one hand and pietism on the other, the Church has withdrawn from many of its historic and basic functions. As the Church begins to revive and resume its required ministry, the result is conflict with the humanistic state. It is important, therefore, to examine some of the historic and necessary duties of the Christian Church. The Church can be understood in part by the biblical words used to describe it in the Bible. The basic word in the New Testament Greek is ecclesia, assembly or congregation, which in the Old Testament was Kahal and Eda. The church is also described in James 2, 2 as a synagogue or synagogue. In the Old Testament, the government of the synagogue was by elders or presbyters. This office continues in the Christian synagogue with the same basic requirements for the office, 1 Timothy 3, 1-13, etc., as required by the synagogue. The Old Testament pattern was so carefully preserved by the church that the English word priest is an abridgment of presbyter, and the College of Cardinals for centuries was a lay council of 70, Numbers 11:16, Like the Sanhedrin, with the Pope, like the Jewish high priest, as the 71st. Jesus created a ruling, serving body of 70 also, a kind of diaconate. Matthew 10, 1 and 17, as the, quote, Sanhedrin, unquote, of the church, which called itself, quote, the Israel of God, unquote, Galatians 6, 16. The Old Testament clergy was divided into two classes, priests and Levites. The work of the priest was a hieratic, sacrifice and offerings being its essential function. For Christians, this aspect of the Old Testament ministry ended with Christ. Even those communions who call their clergy priests do so with a difference, so that the Old Testament priesthood is seen as finished. The function of the Levitical ministry was instruction. Deuteronomy 33.10 As a result, education was basic to the life of the synagogue and the Levitical ministry. The well-known Hebrew proverb declares that a man who did not teach his son the Torah, an example of the Old Testament, and a trade taught him to be a thief. Hence, Israel was unique in antiquity because of its well-nigh universal education as the ministry of the synagogue. Josephus declared that the origin of Hebrew schools was with Moses. Josephus, Antiquities of the Jews, 4.8.12. In Against Apion, 2025, Josephus said of Moses, quote, he commanded to instruct the children in the elements of knowledge, to teach them to walk according to the laws, and to know the deeds of their fathers, the latter that they might in imitate them, 
the former, that growing up with the laws, they might not transgress them nor have the excuse of ignorance." Unquote. While most scholars would be skeptical of a mosaic origin for the schools, it is clear that Deuteronomy is largely concerned with instruction of both adults and children. The influence of this standard was great. Hallel held, quote, An ignorant man, in example one ignorant of the Torah, cannot be truly pious. The more teaching of the law, the more life, the more school, the more wisdom, the more counsel, the more reasonable action, unquote. Sayings of the Fathers 2, 5, and 2, 7. This educational standard noted Barclay, quote, has left its mark deeply upon the world, because in the last analysis it aims to educate the child in order to fit him to be a servant of God. It is an education of children for God, unquote. William Barclay, Train Up a Child, Educational Ideals in the Ancient World, 48, 1959. The early church, the medieval church, the Reformation church, and the contemporary fundamentalist and orthodox churches seek to continue this ancient mandate of education. The church is, as E. Schweitzer in Church Order in the New Testament, 7b 92, pointed out, quote, the realm of dominion in which the risen Lord continues to work, unquote. Cited in Colin Brown, editor, the New International Dictionary of New Testament Theology, Volume 1, page 300, 1967 and 1975. The early church came into conflict with Rome, which sought to license, regulate, control, and tax all religions because the church refused to submit to controls. Its resistance was based on the lordship or sovereignty of Christ. Christ's domain cannot be under the dominion of Caesar. Caesar is under Christ, the Creator and Lord, not Christ under Caesar. The church thus engaged in several unlicensed activities. One, it held meetings which were instructional and worship meetings without permits. Two, it collected abandoned babies as part of its opposition to abortion, gave them to various church families, reared and instructed them. Orphanages were maintained also. Three, because of the Levitical nature of the church, in example, a center of instruction, libraries and schools began to be built very early. Later, cathedral schools developed and universities. The doctrine of academic freedom is a relic of the day when the academy was a part of the church and its functions, and hence entitled to the immunities thereof. How seriously this aspect was seen as basic to the church's life is apparent from the fact that, as soon as churches were built, not possible for the first two centuries, libraries and schools were a part of them. Joseph Bingham, in the Antiquities of the Christian Church, 1850, wrote, quote, there were such places anciently adjoining to many churches from the time that churches began to be erected among Christians. Unquote. Bingham cited some of the ancient references to these schools and libraries. Eusebius, Lib. 6, C20, Hiram, Jerome, Catalog Sereptor, Ecclesia CTS, Gesta Pergot, Ad Calcum Optati, page 267. Augustine de Ades, C. 80, Basile, F. 
82T3, page 152. Ospinian de Templis, lib. 3, C7, page 101, etc. Bingham referred also to a canon attributed to the 6th Ecumenical Council in Constantinople, 680-681 A.D., which required that presbyters in country towns and villages maintain schools for all children. He added, summing up all the evidences, quote, We may conclude that schools were anciently very common appendants both of cathedral and country churches, unquote. B.K. Volume 8 Chapter 7, Section 12. Fault can only be found with Bingham's statement on the ground that they were not, quote, appendants, unquote, but a basic aspect of the life of the church, whether separate from the church or within it. Bingham's high church tendencies led him to stress the liturgical rather than educational life of the church. Many critical scholars would deny that schools existed at so early a date. Too often their premise is to assume a rootless church, an example a church without the fact of the synagogue, and the Levite in the background as its origin, and in the presence as a rival and reminder. Moreover, it must not be forgotten that Christianity is the religion of the book, the Bible. Literacy and education were thus natural concomitants to conversion. But this is not all. Being the religion of the book meant that translations were made into various tongues, and to make the translation readable, education was stressed. In Armenia, an alphabet was created for the Bible translation, and a new culture developed as a result of the new learning in that new alphabet of the Bible. Granted that invasions, wars, the backwardness of many of the newly converted peoples, as in northern Europe, made the development of schools and learning at times a slow process. But it is clear that, one, Christianity saw education or instruction as basic to its life and a necessary function of the church, and two, education in the Western world is a unique development in history and a child of the church. Moreover, we must remember that, in the early church, the service was Levitical or instructional. At the conclusion of the instruction, or sermon, there were questions designed to enable the hearers to clarify misunderstood or difficult points. Since not all who attended were believers, but were sometimes visitors or the unbelieving husband or wife of a believer, questions could be at times contentious. Women were forbidden to engage in this debating or in challenging the pastor or teacher. Paul says, verse 34, let your women keep silent in the churches, for it is not permitted unto them to speak, but they are commanded to be under obedience, as also saith the law. Verse 35, And if they will learn anything, let them ask their husbands at home, for it is a shame for women to speak in the church. 1 Corinthians 14, 34-35 The point is that the church itself in the New Testament was more a school than a temple. The Reformation and later the Puritans restored this instructional emphasis to church meetings. This historic emphasis is again coming to the forefront. At a few morning services in the U.S., the question and answer format has been revived. It is more common at evening services. Even more, churches are establishing, whether as parochial or separate bodies, schools as basic to the life of the church. These are often grade and high schools. Bible colleges, in two or more cases in 1978, 
seminaries, and so on. These are not seen as innovations nor as activities alien to the church, but as central to it. Whenever and wherever there is or has been a deepening of the Old Testament foundations of the Christian faith, together with a revived emphasis on the lordship or sovereignty of Jesus Christ, there has been a corresponding and necessary development of the Levitical nature of the ministry. Education then becomes essential to the ministry. The warning of Jeremiah 10, 2, quote, Thus saith the Lord, Learn not the way of the heathen, unquote, is taken seriously. Another factor is also stressed. Baptism, depending on the church communion, involves an explicit or implicit vow that the baptized, under penalty of curse, is the property of Jesus Christ. He and his children must be instructed in the word of the Lord. It was once commonplace to require all baptized Christians to place their children in church schools. That mandate is again returning, because of the faith that a child who is the property of Christ, by virtue of his baptism or the parent's baptism, cannot be placed in a humanistic school. The Christian school movement is the result. The German historian Ethelbert Stauffer, in his important study of Christ and the Caesars, 1952, in Germany, 1955, in the U.S., showed clearly that the roots of the ancient conflict between church and state are religious. Where the state claims to be God walking on earth, the state will claim sovereignty and will seek to control every area of life and thought. A free society becomes impossible. The Christian claim is not that the church is sovereign over the world, for it is not. Lordship or sovereignty is an attribute of God, not man. But the Christian insistence is on the freedom of the church, quote, the realm of dominion in which the risen Lord continues to work, unquote, E. Schweitzer, from the controls of the state or any other agency. It involves, moreover, a denial of the doctrine of state sovereignty. The very word sovereignty is absent from the U.S. Constitution because of the theological context of those times. The historian A.F. Pollard wrote, These colonies had been as anxious to get rid of James II in 1688 as they were to be free from Parliament in 1776. Their fundamental objection was to any sovereignty vested in any state whatsoever, even in their own. Americans may be defined as that part of the English-speaking world which has instinctively revolted against the doctrine of the sovereignty of the state and has, not quite successfully, striven to maintain that attitude from the time of the Pilgrim Fathers to the present day. It is this denial of all sovereignty which gives its profound and permanent interest to the American Revolution. The Pilgrim Fathers crossed the Atlantic to escape from sovereign power. Washington called it a, quote, monster, unquote. The professor of American history at Oxford calls it a, quote, bugaboo, unquote. And Mr. Lansing writes of the peace conference that, quote, nine-tenths of all international difficulties arise out of the problem of sovereignty and the so-called sovereign state, unquote. A.F. Pollard, Factors in American History, page 31F, 1925. This statement is all the more of interest because Pollard was an English scholar and a great authority of his day on constitutionalism. 
Since Pollard's day, of course, the U.S. federal government and the states have steadily advanced claims of sovereignty. At the same time, they have become increasingly humanistic in their view of law and have firmly established humanism as the religion of the, quote, public, unquote, or state schools. The novelty in the present conflict is not that the church or the Christian schools are claiming new and historically novel immunities, but that the various American states are claiming a jurisdiction never before exercised or existing. The novelty is on the part of the state. It is a product of its claim to sovereignty. This claim places the state on a collision course with the church, and even more with God, the only sovereign. On April 30, 1839, on, quote, the Jubilee of the Constitution, unquote, John Quincy Adams attacked the new doctrine of state sovereignty. As against parliamentary omnipotence and sovereignty, the colonists in 1776 appealed to the omnipotence and sovereignty of God. Adams declared, There is the Declaration of Independence, and there is the Constitution of the United States. Let them speak for themselves. The grossly immoral and dishonest doctrine of despotic state sovereignty, the exclusive judge of its own obligations, and responsible to no power on earth or in heaven for the violation of them, is not there. The Declaration says, It is not for me. The Constitution says, It is not in me. S.H. Peabody, Editor, American Patriotism, Speeches, Letters, and Other Papers, etc., page 321. 1880. The conflict is the same religious conflict which saw Rome and the early church in bitter war, and with many Christians martyred. It is Christ versus Caesar. For the Christian, there can be no compromise. What is at stake is not his property, concern, or income, but Christ's dominion. Quote, the realm of dominion in which the risen Lord continues to work. Unquote. January 1979. In the name of Jesus Christ, or in the name of Caesar. Chalcedon Position Paper Number 2. The meaning of names is largely irrelevant in our day. We name our children in terms of names that please us, whatever they may mean. In the Bible, especially in the Old Testament, names are definitions, and a man's name changed as his faith and character changed. We do not know Abraham's name before his calling. We do know that God first named him Abram and then Abraham to signify his place in God's plan. It was a name Abraham had to use by faith because, humanly speaking, he was not the father of a great multitude. Because names have become meaningless to us, we assume that they are so with God as well. Far from being the case, one of God's basic laws concerns his name. Quote, Thou shalt not take the name of the Lord thy God in vain, for the Lord will not hold him guiltless that taketh his name in vain. Unquote. Exodus 27, Deuteronomy 5:11. Proverbs 18:10 tells us, quote, "The name of the Lord is a strong tower; the righteous runneth into it and is safe." Unquote. Paul declares in Colossians 3:17, "And whatsoever you do in word or deed, do all in the name of the Lord Jesus." giving thanks to God and the Father by Him, unquote. In Hebrew, name is Shem. It appears some 770 times. In Greek, it is Onoma. The name sets forth and defines the person named. 
Hence, when Moses asked what God's name is, God made clear that he was beyond definition, so that his, quote, name, unquote, is simply, I am, that I am, or he who is, Jehovah or Yahweh. Then the Lord declares himself to be the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, Exodus 3, 13-15. Because God is infinite, omnipotent, and omniscient, he cannot be limited or described by any definition. He is the eternal God, the one who creates and defines all things, but is himself beyond definition. He is, however, knowable in his revelation to Abraham and others, and in his word. The name of God is thus, I am, that I am. But names not only set forth the meaning and definition of a person, they also set forth his power, dominion, and authority. Hence the commandments are given in the name of God. The authority, power, and dominion of Jesus Christ are so total, quote, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow of things in heaven and things in earth and things under the earth, unquote. Philippians 2.10 Now practically, what does this mean? It means first that we have seriously erred in limiting the third commandment to verbal profanity. To be profane means literally to be outside the temple, outside the Lord. In its true meaning, profanity is any and every word, thought, and action which is outside the triune God, which is apart from his word and government. To be bearers of the name, in example, to be called Christian, means that we are totally under Christ's rule and dominion. Very briefly, salvation, sovereignty, and government cannot be separated. Only a totally sovereign God who controls all things can save us. Such a God is totally the Lord over all creation. The government of all things is upon his shoulders. Isaiah 9, 6-7, Psalms 2. There is not a moment of time nor an atom or corner of all the universe which is outside the power and government of the triune God of Christ the King. As a result, it is profanity to assume that any area can be outside of God and His law. A very common question asked of us these days is this, quote, I agree that homosexuals have no place in the pulpit or in a Christian school, but how can we bar them from a neutral realm like the public school or the civil service? Unquote. The answer is that there are no neutral realms. God is God over all things, and to exempt any realm from his government and law word is profanity and a violation of the third commandment. Quote, the Lord will not hold him guiltless that taketh his name in vain. Unquote. Second, throughout the Bible, the lives and actions of God's people were conducted in the name of the Lord, which, we are told, quote, is a strong tower. The righteous runneth into it, and is safe. Unquote. Proverbs 18.10. Of this verse, Franz Delish wrote, quote, The name of Have is the revelation of God and the God of revelation himself. His name is his nature representing itself, his free and all-powerful government in grace and truth. This name, which is afterwards interwoven in the name of Jesus, is a strong high tower bidding defiance to every hostile assault. However, not only is the Lord's name our defense, but also our strength in overcoming the enemy. Thus, third, the Lord's name is the name of power in overcoming all enemies 
and in subduing all things to Jesus Christ. Philippians 2, 9-11 He is the Lord, and all things shall be placed under His feet. Psalms 2, Hebrews 2, 8 Fourth, we must therefore, if we would not profane God's name, do all things, whether in the area of thought, education, or learning, or in the area of action or deeds, in the name of the Lord Jesus. Colossians 3.17 This means that our lives, homes, churches, schools, civil governments, arts and sciences, and all things else must be done in the name, that is, under the kingship, dominion, authority, power, and the word of the Lord. Anything else is profanity and practical unbelief. In whose name does our world operate now? The old-fashioned order. Quote, halt, in the name of the law, unquote. Summoned up the authority of the state. That state authority was once to a degree in the name of the Lord. Today, the state, its courts and law, and its schools are profane. They are outside of Christ and in contempt of Him. The war of the early church against Rome was a war of names. Which name was the name of power of ultimate authority? The name of Christ or the name of Caesar? Rome's position was expressed in its fundamental law, quote, the health or welfare of the people is the highest law, unquote. Rome's approach to the early church was thus in the name of the general welfare of the people, and the Roman Empire was the expression of that concern and the source of authority. The approach of Rome thus was to deny that it sought to suppress freedom of religion. Rather, it sought to protect the health and general welfare of the people by requiring certain submissions of all religious groups. Implicit in this position, however, was the belief that first, the state or Caesar is the best judge of the health or welfare of the people. This meant that the word of truth and wisdom was not the word of God, but the word of the state. Sound social order and health thus was held to require that Caesar's word would prevail and govern. Second, the governing word is the word of power, and Rome held that Caesar's word is the word of power. But Caesar's word could not save Rome, and Caesar's course of power could kill, but it could neither redeem nor save. The more emphatically imperial Rome asserted its word and law, the greater became the decay and the decline of Rome. Third, quote, the highest law, unquote, is not the health of the people, but the law word of God, and, as a result, Roman law and society, like our own, had a false and rotting center. The more Rome developed the fundamental premises of its law, the more it hastened its decay and collapse, even as the world today increases the extent of its prices with its remedial effort, because all its remedies have a false premise, humanism. Fourth, the conflict then and now is a war of names. Which is the name of power, Christ or Caesar? All too many churchmen are radically profane and blasphemous. They are either silent in the face of or agreeable to the state's usurpation of one area of life after another to its humanistic authority. These churchmen withdraw into a sanctimonious surrender and do nothing to stop the growing profanity whereby one area of life after another is withdrawn from the government of Christ the King and placed into the hands of Caesar. Again, all over the world, quote, the chief priest, unquote, of our day, 
like those of old are declaring, quote, We have no king but Caesar. John 19.15 If for a moment we allow humanism any title or right to any area of creation, we are profane and we deny Christ to affirm Caesar. Again and again, the summons of Scripture is to, quote, believe on the name of Jesus Christ, unquote. This means to ground the totality of our lives, thinking, institutions, and world, including church, state, and school, on the name of Christ the King, under His authority, power, law word, and government. This is clear from 2 Timothy 2, 19. Quote, Nevertheless, the foundation of God standeth sure, having this seal. The Lord knoweth them that are His, and let every one that nameth the name of Jesus Christ depart from iniquity. Unquote. Paul was condemning, quote, profane and vain babblers, unquote, who wrongly divided the word of truth. God's foundation or reign is not affected by their profanity. God knows His own. Those who name the Lord are those who depart from iniquity or injustice, unrighteousness, adikia. Iniquity is that condition where man opposes to God's right or righteousness, to God's order and justice, his own humanistic doctrine of order, right, or justice. Iniquity can be a physical act of lawlessness. It can also be a faith, philosophy, or order to society which sets up a law institution, state, or order outside of God and His law word. It is not under the name and authority of God. It does not serve or obey Him. It was a strong emphasis of Christian teaching and preaching for centuries that the state must serve the Lord. The New England Puritan, Charles Turner, pastor at Duxbury, in a sermon before Governor Thomas Hutchinson and the House of Representatives of the Massachusetts Bay Province, May 26th, 1773 declared, Rulers are, at once, ministers of God and servants of society, as gospel ministers are servants of Christ and of the churches. And, if God has given to the community a right to appoint its servants, it is but rational and consistent to suppose that the community should have a right to take effectual care, that their servants should not counteract and disappoint the great purpose for which they were distinguished from their fellow creatures, and if, in any case, it may be seen necessary for the public salvation to give the servants of society a dismission. In other words, as surely as the church must dismiss ungodly pastors as false ministers, so too it must dismiss all state officers who will not serve the Lord as being ungodly ministers of state. To fail to do so is to partake in their sin and to become over ourselves profane. We are today a profane society, and our cities and countryside are spotted by profane churches which take the Lord's name in vain. The encroachments of humanism into church, state, school, and every other realm must cease. We must cease from all personal and corporate profanity or face God's judgment as traitors and rebels. A piety which concerns itself only with man's soul and leaves the world to the devil is a profane piety. God's warning is clear. Quote, Cease ye from man whose breath is in his nostrils, for wherein is he to be accounted of? Unquote. Isaiah 2.22 To be profane is to be outside of God's grace and mercy. 
Isaiah lived in a generation that professed the name of the Lord, but were, quote, a people of unclean lips, unquote, Isaiah 6, 5, because their lives and politics were profane. Are we not far worse? Is there any remedy other than total submission to Christ the King, doing all things in every area of life, thought, and action, in the name or power, authority, and government of the Lord? Quote, who is on the Lord's side? Unquote. Exodus 32:26. Let him stand in the name of the King. February 1979. Can we tithe our children? Scripture requires us to tithe our income. God requires his tithe a modest amount as compared to the modern state's demands. But in all things else, God requires the totality of our allegiance our service, and our lives. We cannot tithe our children nor ourselves. We cannot give our tenth child only to the Lord and to Christian schools while sending all others to the state school. Neither can we give our children to the Lord one day in seven or in ten and to the state the rest of the time. We and all that we have are God's possession. Children are described as a, quote, gift or heritage Unquote, from the Lord, and also as a quote, reward, boon, unquote, or blessing. Psalms 127.3 To misuse God's gifts and blessings is to incur His wrath. It is only, quote, everyone that feareth the Lord, that walketh in His ways, unquote, who is, quote, blessed, unquote. Psalms 128.1 the first and basic premise of paganism, socialism, and Molech worship is its claim that the state owns the child. The basic premise of the public schools is the claim of ownership, a fact some parents are encountering in the courts. It is the essence of paganism to claim first the lives of the children, then the properties of the people. For too long, most professing Christians have been practicing pagans who have honored God falsely, they quote with their lips, do honor me, but have removed their heart from me, and their fear toward me is taught by the precept of men, unquote. Isaiah 29:13. On all such, God's judgment is assured, and God's judgment on our age is in increasing evidence. Judgment is neither averted nor moderated by much crying or bemoaning, but only by a renewed heart, by faith and obedience. How can we expect God to honor us or bless us when we give our children to the state schools and surrender their minds daily to the teachings of humanism? It is sin and madness to believe so, and those who try to justify their sin only increase it. The true believer will, like Hannah, 1 Samuel 1, f see children as a gift from the Lord, to be given to the Lord as long as they live. February 1979 Thank you for joining me this week in the reading of Roots of Reconstruction by Bruce's John Rushton. Lord willing, we will be reading again next week. Until then, may God bless your endeavors as you serve the one and only King Jesus. It was the blood of Jesus perfect sacrifice the love he has shown
Tell the world. 